You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Outdoor Edge in their complete lineup of knives and game processing kits. These guys right now are doing an absolutely huge giveaway where you could win an elk hunt. And not just any elk hunt. We're talking about a seven or eight mile horseback ride into the backcountry. We're talking a one-on-one guided hunt. You're going to be sleeping in a wall tent, and you're going to be doing that for five days with the founder and CEO of Outdoor Edge, David Block. Now, if you've never been on an elk hunt before, I'm telling you right now, go sign up for this because if you ever hear a elk bugle, whether it's at 400 yards or it's at 40 yards, it is a life-changing experience. So here's how you enter. Go to OutdoorEdge.com. There's going to be a big banner for it somewhere on their homepage. All you have to do is click on that. Go fill out some information. I think your name, your email address, maybe some other stuff. And that's all you have to do. That's how you are entered. They're going to be picking a winner oh, a ways from now. So you have plenty of time to enter. Go visit OutdoorEdge.com. Sign up today. And if you decide to purchase any products from the website, Enter the discount code NATION30. That's the word NATION with the number 30 after that. No spaces. NATION30. And you will receive 30% off your purchase. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Brought to you by Vortex Optics. Happy Friday, all you whitetail knuckleheads, man. I am like 13 days out from South Dakota. I'm like 25 days out from Michigan, and I am starting to get the itch. And I don't mean STD type of itch. I mean the itch to get out and lay something down on the ground. And I I think that you guys understand what I'm talking about, man. I am I am trying to check off the honeydew boxes, you know. I'm uh, I tore down a wall in my house today uh, to, you know, make room for new flooring. My wife was like, "Hey man, um, what do you think that we should do for the bathroom vanity? Check out this floor. What do you think?" And all I do is nod and smile because honestly, I don't give a shit. All I want to do is bow hunt. And, and so I'm, I'm building the brownie points so I can get out of here and go hunt, man. Uh, I think you, I think you guys can understand. I am 
just jacked. And today we're going to scratch that itch just a little bit more with a really cool story from a guy named Matt Bates who was used to hunting in Kentucky. And Kentucky has some really good deer hunting. And later in life, you know, in his late 20s, he said, you know what, I'm going to join the military. And so he gets uh, stationed in Georgia, and which is a bit of a culture shock, hence the title of this episode, uh, Culture Shock. And that is, he goes down to Georgia, and while he's uh, stationed down there, he decides he's going to try to hunt some public, and he breaks down the public land scenario in southeast Georgia. And it was a real strong learning curve for him because he did not uh, have very good success if any success at all and you know parts of Georgia they can run dogs Uh, there's lots of roads there's lots of pressure and he talks about all that then he gets deployed and he comes back and he's just like you know what I'm going to dedicate myself to hunting on the fort uh, the military fort that they uh, base that they have there so he did a lot of scouting digital scouting while he was uh, stationed overseas he came back and he started grinding and he got the job done but there's a lot more details to to the story so uh, make sure you listen this is a really good one Um, it's it's awesome because I love it when people can go to different places and be successful through scouting through e-scouting through boots on the ground through learning experiences from the tree stand and you're going to learn how he was successful in this episode so uh man i really enjoy conversations like this hopefully you guys do too be sure to subscribe to the nine finger chronicles podcast on itunes or wherever you download your podcast be sure to follow along on uh, to the nine finger chronicles on instagram and Facebook along with Sportsman's Nation on Instagram and Facebook. And we got to do a commercial today and the commercial is Lone Wolf Tree Stands. First thing you got to do is go to lonewolfhuntingproducts.com slash nine fingers. That's the number nine followed by the word fingers. The number nine lonewolfhuntingproducts.com slash nine fingers. The number nine followed by the word fingers and you guys are going to be entered into a giveaway. The only thing you have to do is enter your first name, your last name, your email address, confirm your email address, and then you will be entered to win a tree stand of your choice, either a alpha or an assault or four sticks. So that's the, uh, that's the, uh, that's the giveaway, right? Very easy to do. And when you do that, you're going to get a discount code. Well, I'm just going to tell you the discount code anyway. It's 9FC50, I believe. And uh, let me see here. Yep, 9FC50. And that's going to be good for $50 off of any order over $199 or 200 bucks, right? So Along with those numbers, that's like a 25% discount. You get into some of the tree stands, you're looking at about a 20% discount. And uh, that's for one of the best tree stands on the market, hands down, American made. It's quiet. It's, uh, it's It's a mobile hunter's best friend. I'll just put it to you that way. I am running the Assault this year, and I love the Assault. That's my run and gun setup. If there is like a pinch point or downwind of a bedding area that I know the tree stand is going to stay in a, in a quote-unquote good rut spot, I'm probably going to run the uh, the Alpha 
in a scenario like that. Just a little bit bigger of a platform. I, I don't have to move it around a lot. But other than that, man, I really think that uh, uh, you guys should check out LoneWolfHuntingProducts.com. Use the discount code. Sign up for the uh, to win the giveaway, and I'm going to pick another winner October 1st. Other than that, we're done with the commercial. We're done with the intro. Let's get into today's, into today's, I don't know, Culture Shock podcast with Matt Bates. In three, two, one. All right, on the phone with me today for the second time in a long time, Mr. Matt Bates. Matt, how are we doing? I'm doing great, Dan. How about yourself? I'm doing good, man. Now, w- before we started recording, you reminded me that you are were on like one of the first 10 Nine Finger Chronicles episodes? Uh, yes, I was. Uh, we actually, my son was in the background. We were talking about um, cartoons and stuff that he was watching right when we first started the podcast. It was a long time ago. <laughs> hey, not much change, man. I still, I still uh, b- BS up front quite a bit. Uh, now, you said that was like six years ago? Yeah, it was. I believe my son was like two or three, and he just turned uh, eight this past July. So, wow. So yeah, it was a, it was a while back. That's crazy, man. Uh, do you like, do you remember what we talked about? I'll be honest, I don't. I don't remember what we oh, talked yeah. about. Yeah, we talked about that. Uh, so like I said, like I, I was telling you before in the, in the other podcast, uh, I grew up in Kentucky, and uh, it was kind of like a, a tradition type thing. Like when we would hunt. I would go down to my grandfather's farm. He owns about 200 acres. And it was just, you know, in the beginning of things, it was just, it, it was just something that we did every fall. Yeah. It, you know, it was spending time with the family and, you know, getting the friends around. And uh, then it just, it, one day a light switched, you know, and it was just, you know, it started consuming me. I, like trail cameras came out. Yeah. And I was like, Ooh, I want to run. I had, you know, I had the old Remington trail cameras that took the C batteries. Oh and, yeah. You know, you had to go get, you know, stuff developed. And I was just, <laughs> you know, it started, it started just eating at me. And I was like, you know what? I know we don't see all the deer that are here. So I talked, talked, you know, kind of talked my papa into letting us, you know, put some trail cameras down there. And, uh, you know, we were able to start getting pictures of deer and, and, you know, it kind of was got to that point. It was like, you know what, maybe we shouldn't just be out here, you know, shooting the first couple deer that we see or just, you know, doing whatever. Maybe we should just, you know, if, if we put our time and effort into it, we might be able to shoot some big deer because there are a, a lot of good genetics down there. Yeah, yeah. That's cool, man. That's cool. All right, so you reached out to me on Instagram again, and yep. uh, you, man, how long ago did you join the military? Um, I joined the military about four years ago. Okay, four years ago. And how yeah. old were you when you joined? Uh, I, I joined pretty late in life. I joined when I was 28 years old. Okay, so you joined the military at 28 years old. Uh, you did your thing, and where did you get stationed? Um, I got stationed in southeast Georgia at Fort Stewart. Okay. And, and th- uh, I did the deployments and all that kind of stuff. So. Okay, where, where did you end up going? Um, I, I, I wound up going over to the Middle East. Um, I, I don't, I don't have a combat, you know, MOS. I'm just, I'm a heavy machine operator. So I was pretty much support, but, uh, you know, I went over to, I was in Kuwait. I was in uh, UAE. I was in Jordan. I was in Syria for a little bit. 
Um, I was fortunate enough to be able to go to uh, Dubai and, you know, be able to see all those places over there while I was, you know, still doing my job. Yeah. Do any of those places from a travel slash adventure standpoint stick out to you as far as uh, places you've been to the Middle East? Um, not right off the top of my head because most of the places that we were at, I don't think it would be, um, really a travel destination other than when I was in UAE, we were stationed in a little camp right outside of, uh, Dubai. We were there for about, I don't know, about eight weeks. And then they were like, you guys have been cooped up long enough. You know, we'll let you guys leave you a civilian vehicle and we'll let you go out and do your all thing as long as you promise not to get in trouble or do anything you're not supposed to. So it was uh, it was it was pretty neat to be able to go see that. But yeah. I, I was definitely glad to glad to come back home. Yeah, I've I've heard from other people who have been there that Dubai is a wild town. And what I mean by wild is just like this oasis in a otherwise desert that is just skyscrapers and buildings and fancy cars and craziness. Oh yeah, they drive um like like Land Rovers, like they drive Honda Civics over here. You see, you know, teenage kids driving Land Rovers. You see all these supercars driving around. You can, it's nothing to walk down the the streets, like in the city. And there are people out there just renting out supercars for tourists to, you know, just to get in and go drive for the day. Or, you know, they, uh, uh, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a different culture, but at the same time, it's like, being in a really big like touristy city yeah. in the United States. Everybody, you know, spoke English. Everybody was really friendly. It's, you know, I never felt like I was in fear of anything while yeah. I was there. Yeah. Now, did you have a, a culture? You know, you mentioned that some of the places uh, that you went weren't really – you know, travel destinations, but was there a particular culture in, in your travels that kind of stood out to you as, Hey man, you know, they may be portrayed one way, but your experience led you to think something different or was it just everything I, that you hear on the news is that is right. Oh no. I, in, in my, I, I don't think that necessarily everything that you hear on the news or you see on TV or in the movies, you know, that kind of stuff is right. Right. You know, everybody for the for the most part, like I'm going to say, like 98 percent of the time, everybody is really friendly. You know, they're just they want to talk to you. Um, they do their best to you know to communicate. That you, you know they're there. Like when you're there with them, it's they're trying to be your friend. Yeah. And you can sense that from people. You know, it's not like anybody was really giving us the cold shoulder while we were there or anything along those lines. It was like. You know, I'd never had real hummus before, and there were people, they would just, like, bring you hummus, and they would bring you, like, gifts to say, and it's, like, one of those things that, like, we did some classes, you're not allowed to, like, if someone, like, gives you a gift over there, you're not allowed to be like, no, I don't want that, it's disrespectful, so anything that they gave you, you know, it was, like, it was kind of along the lines of, like, yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you, yeah. and so, and, you know, I don't know, it's, I never... I never felt like I was, you know, in danger of anything. And I didn't feel like people were trying to disrespect me or giving, you know, give me the stink eye, so to say, 
over anything. But then again, I wasn't in like the really like for the most part, I wasn't in the the real combat related places. I gotcha. I gotcha. Cool, man. Well, first off, and I speak for all my listeners as well. Thank you for your service. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Now, while you were stationed down in Georgia, you mentioned that you had a a, a bit of a, a culture shock of your own within the United States. You coming from hunting Kentucky, and then you were, you know, you, you moved to Southeast Georgia. What was that culture shock for you? So, for one, the when I got here, I, you know, I, I love to bow hunt, which I, I gun hunt and I bow hunt, but um, I got down here. And I started, you know, looking at the, all the rules and regulations for the public hunting areas. Because at the time, um, it was more daunting to me to try to hunt on Fort Stewart. Because there were so many regulations that you had to go through. You had to register your weapons. If your bow has a serial number, it has to be registered on post. You have to check in online before you go out to an area. And then you have to check out before a certain amount of time. And it was just really daunting to me to, to, to try to do that. And uh, so I started looking into the, the wildlife management areas around um, where I lived, which was right outside of the post of Fort Stewart. And um, it comes to find out there, I don't know, there's hundreds of thousands of acres within, you know, an hour to an hour and a half drive, you know, from where I lived. So um, I started, you know, trying to look at the Onyx maps or um, just look at the map of the county and then find out where the WMAs were, and, you know, or print off the maps that they had on the website of the, of the WMAs. And I started going down here, or like I started going out and going to these places. And I'm used to, if I hunted a public property in Kentucky, for the most part, they were, they were relatively small. Even the bigger ones, though, they only had a couple parking areas. Like it was a no-foot travel access wildlife management area. So you could, you had a couple parking spots and then you'd have to walk in to wherever you went. But when I started going out to these WMAs here in Georgia, what I realized is they have, you can just drive your vehicles, like in the area that I'm in, you can just drive your vehicles all through them. They have, you know, trails that they have mowed. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a whole road system, kind of like a grid map almost through all of these all these hunting areas. So say you have a thousand acre WMA, it's not like you have one parking area and you can try to, you know, walk around, find signs or, you know, study your maps and be like, okay, there could be, you know, food on this side on private, try to get as close to it as as you can, you know, from the, from the public or that, that looks like a good bedding area over there. Let me try to get to it from the maps. You can't really see it, but when you get out there, you're only actually hunting from one of the places that I was hunting at. You, I was only actually hunting like 10 acre little parcels because everything had roads, all is an entire road system through it. And then I was out there and I had no idea that I knew that they ran dogs down South to hunt deer, but I had no idea that I would be in a position where I was in a tree stand and it was like a race was going on around me. You know, it was just dogs running, people flying by in trucks, and I had no idea what was going on. So I wound up having to do some research 
And on that WMA, that particular one I was hunting at, they allowed dog hunting, and I, I quickly realized that that was probably not the place where where I, I, I was going to kill my first deer in Georgia. Yeah. So what did, like, what, at what point throughout that, that transition to, you know, because a true hunter isn't just not going to hunt. He doesn't say, well, man, this sucks. Uh, I can't. I'm not going to hunt it. You know, a, a real, a real enthusiast is going to go find a way to hunt. You, you went out, you started hunting, you ran into these obstacles like guys running dogs, um, or, you know, the, the, just the amount of pressure and traffic that some of these pieces of property had. At what point did you say, okay, I got to start making some moves. I got to try something different. Well, so what happened was, was I deployed and while I was deployed, I had, you know, I had an ample amount of time to try to do all my research and do everything that I could to find a, a spot that I, that I felt like I could go to whenever I got back. Because I don't know if you've ever, you know, I've hunted my entire life and, you know, since I was a, you know, a small kid with my, with my family. And I don't think I've went a season that I did not go into the woods as, as much as possible. Well, so I deployed and I wasn't able to hunt. So I, that was the first time in my entire life that I could not, I couldn't go into the woods. I couldn't go squirrel hunting if I wanted to. I couldn't, you know, try to rustle up some rabbits. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do anything. Could definitely couldn't deer hunt. So I was, that's when I wasn't working, that's what I was doing. Um, I would, I was fortunate enough that I had a, you know, internet connection and a television and everything. So I would watch, I felt like I watched every episode of meat eater on Netflix at least a hundred times. And I would just, I would replay that stuff on the TV and I would pull out my phone and I would look at my maps and I would, I was trying, I dialed everything down and I looked at all these other WMAs that I wouldn't have to drive, you know, somewhere, you know, 200 miles north or 200 miles west to get out of the, you know, the marshy type land, you know, all the sand and the, and the swamps and, you know, anything on the coast. I started looking at Fort Stewart and I did all my research and I was like, whenever I get back, I'm going to do everything that there is necessary for me to be able to hunt Fort Stewart. Cause I started looking at their website and I was like, there is no way that these people are killing these deers out here. Like this size of this caliber of deer in Southeast Georgia. Cause you, you walk around here and everybody's like 125 inch deer, you know, 125 inch buck is, as you know, you're, you're bragging to all your friends, you're posting it on Facebook, you know, Everybody from the next couple counties, if it's 125 to 135 inch deer, everybody knows about it. You know, it's that's a big deer for for this area down here. And I'm just, I, you know, I'm used to. I had to change that aspect too of of my hunting coming from, you know, the western part of Kentucky. 125 inch, 135 inch deer, you're gonna let that deer walk. I mean, unless it's your first deer or you're hunting with somebody who just wants to, you know, who just, that, that's something that they're comfortable with harvesting. And uh, I had to change that because I was like, I'm not going to see 160 inch deer down here. I can't, I can't, I can hunt all season and, and it's just not going to happen. So, you know, I, I lowered my, not necessarily my goals, but 
what I thought a nice deer would be for down here. If I, if a deer was, if I thought it was, you know, a hundred inches or plus, I was, I was going to shoot it because I, you know, I didn't, I don't have, didn't have a high expectation of seeing anything much bigger than that in the area that I was, that I was in. Yeah. So, so what, what did that realization kind of look like? Because I've talked to some guys who have had to move from one state to another. Um, and one, one uh, example is I think a guy moved from Wisconsin to I can't I can't remember if it was Alabama, Mississippi, or Louisiana, but it was one of those three. And it was almost like that first season for him was heart like a heartbreaker, like because he didn't he didn't want to to accept that it's a completely different environment and it's a completely different deer herd. You know what I mean? Was, yeah, was that, was that tough? I was. Oh my God. Yes. I was just, I was in shock. I was like, yeah, I, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm going to go hunting. Uh, probably not going to see anything, but you know, on the other hand, you can't shoot them if you're sitting on the couch. Yeah. So, and you know, you got to battle with, with hogs down here too. A lot of times whenever you find hogs, you're not going to find, the deer the deer are going to be anywhere else that the hogs are you know that the hogs aren't but there are hogs everywhere so you got to kind of find these little pockets it's like little pockets of deer that you're trying to find and you know if you're going out there and you're deer hunting you can't just shoot if you want to shoot a deer you can't just shoot the hogs all the time because then you're not going to be able to you know you're not going to see deer if you're just you know out there shooting hogs the entire time you're out there right so, it, you know, it was, it was, I'm not going to say that I was depressed, but I was, I was telling myself, you know, there's something that you have to be able to do that whenever you get back, that's going to put you on a deer and you're going to be able to have some kind of success, whether, you know, I was, I wasn't very picky about my first deer in Georgia. It just so happened to be that I shot, I was fortunate enough that I shot a nice one um, to be my first deer in Georgia, but I didn't, I didn't have the expectations of seeing that deer at all. I was, I was, if it was a legal deer, I was going to take it. Yeah. I didn't, I, I wasn't going to be very picky at all. All right. So, um, talk to me about the learning curve then. Okay. So you went out and you did that public piece and you're like, this sucks. You got deployed. You did your research on the actual base itself. Were there any regulations other than what you've already mentioned about um, for this? Was this military personnel only were allowed, military personnel and guests, or could anybody register and hunt the the base? So on, so on Fort Stewart, anyone can actually register and hunt on post. It's um, I don't quote me on the numbers, but I think it's like. $40 and you can hunt. I'm wanting to say it's close to 200,000 acres. Okay. Um, but a lot of it's closed off. It's um, impact areas, gun ranges, you know, stuff like that. But anyone can go out there and do it as long as you put in, you know, you, you, you do the right steps and actually register your weapons on Fort Stewart. And, you know, you got to check into a website every morning and check into a website. But, every night but it's something like i thought it was going to be this daunting task to be able to do all that stuff yeah and come to find out it was it was relatively easy and i i only ran into last 
season while I was out there, I only ran into, I think, like three other hunters the entire time that I hunted Fort Stewart. And I hunted Fort Stewart from the beginning of archery season in September all the way through, you know, I think the season goes out close to the end of January. So, but it's a little bit different here because the archery, it's, it's almost, it's almost, it's almost flipped. So the gun season here is from October until January. So I'm used to having a nine day firearm season and I bow hunt the rest, you know, whenever I can. And I went from having a nine day firearm season in Kentucky to having almost a three month long firearm season. Yeah. And it just, it blew my mind. I was like, there's no way. And they told me that I had two buck tags and I was like, what? I, you can, you're allowed to shoot two bucks. Like that's never been a thing. I've never been allowed to shoot two bucks in my life. You know, in Kentucky, because Kentucky's a one-buck state, and I never really dabbled in going out of state because I focused all my all my hunting on my papaw's piece of piece of ground because we had you know we had big deer there. So why would I need to go anywhere else? You know, if I was focusing all my efforts there. Yeah. And uh, so they they told me I had two buck tags, and I was just like, that was that was another shock to me. I was like, okay, so now it's not game over when you shoot one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you get a little bit more time in the woods, but you sacrifice the quality that you're used to. Yeah. For the most part. For the most part. Okay. So let's talk specifically about the base now. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the terrain on this base. What did you do when you made the decision and you actually got back and started to, to put some boots on the ground to, to, to get to know the terrain better? So what I did was I studied Onyx, and I, I couldn't tell you how many hours. I mean, I'm sure everybody who listens to your podcast is probably subscribed to it, and they put in just as many hours as everybody else, and, you know, just staring at maps and trying to find some kind of a travel portal or, or a bedding area. Well, looking at a map, look, looking at everything from Onyx, from a perspective of looking at everything from, you know, close to the Midwest, to here, the only difference is if it's a, like on Fort Stewart, it's pretty much flat. Everything's flat. The water table here is only four inches under the ground. So every it, if it rains, you know, there's water, there's standing water everywhere. There's swamps. There's, you know, it's mostly pine trees, oak trees. But a lot of oak trees that I found don't really produce um, a lot of, you know, acorns. So it was one of those things where I had to, if you look at it from the map, you could look at something and say, oh my gosh, that looks like the best bedding area I've ever seen. Look how thick it is. And then you go to put your boots on the ground and you start to walk around. You get three feet off, you know, a road that you can park on and you're knee deep in water. Yeah. And it's as far as the eye can see. And if it's not underwater, then it's so thick. The undergrowth is so thick with palmettos and, you know, just any kind of vegetation you can think of, you know, five, six feet high. And then it's the pine trees above that. So, and it, there's not, it's not really much terrain change. You know, it's not any kind of rolling hills. There's not a lot of, there's no valleys. The only terrain change is that there's a dried up creek and you can walk down into the bottom of it. Yeah. All right. So you ended up, 
getting some boots on the ground. Um, where were you finding most of the sign? Um, it wasn't, it, I did find some sign, like you can find sign all over the place. I didn't really key in on, you know, a whole lot of rubs or scrapes because the, 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 the rut here is, it's not as intense. It's, 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 I feel like it's a, it's more a little bit drawn out and my, this is, this is just, you know, my perspective, you know, there's nothing to back this up, but it's just. I felt like the rug came in, like, as I was hunting last year, I felt like it came in a little bit earlier. It didn't come in as strong, but it just kind of, it, it went for a little while and then fizzled out. So it was it was more of a drawn-out type of rut instead of a compact type of rut that I'm used to hunting back in Kentucky. You know, it's a, a couple-week time span, and th- if you're there when it's happening, you know, it's happening. You're going to be on some type of deer. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter the specific ground that you're hunting but if the rut's in and kicking then you know the deer are going to be on the feet okay all right um now is it fairly flat there oh yeah it's it's flat and there's not a lot of it's not it's not a muddy soil type so like you can find trails and you can find worn out trails and you it's it's a little bit harder to distinguish like from in the mud, then in like the sand, like a sandy type soil, if the sand is really soft, it's kind of, it's easy to distinguish a deer track from a hog track. Right. But if it's, if it's a little bit of a, like a, like a real powdery type sand, then you're going to, it, you're not going to be able to, you're, there's just going to be like indention. Like they step in it and the sand all falls back into it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's a little bit harder to determine. But that's I, I mainly try to focus on where I found tracks and where they pinpointed down into some type of funnel because there's no you didn't have, you don't really have a saddle you know any kind of like real the only major pinch points that you have that that I found were on the edges of like marshes that butted up to a field that you would have you would only have a block of timber that was maybe. 30 or 40 yards wide, but then you'd have trails that were worn out going down through there because they didn't want to get in the water. They didn't want to travel out in these fields that were open because there's, you know, vehicles, whether it be military vehicles or, you know, civilian vehicles or whatever, driving out these roads, they didn't want to be seen that way. So it's kind of, you just had to kind of keep searching around like on the ground until you could find these little areas where you could find where the deer were moving. Okay. So, you know, in, in places with more terrain, let's just say, and I'll use Iowa, Wisconsin, even, uh, Kentucky as examples, right. Um, there's a little bit more terrain deer are somewhat on a consistent pattern going from a bed to a a big ag food source or from a bed to a, uh, an Oak Grove or whatever. Um, what, what did you see or, start to find out about a daily pattern of a whitetail that lives in that environment? It's, it's, I felt like it was, it was the same. It was a, you know, it was a, a bed to food, but the bedding areas, it wasn't necessarily something that I thought would be a bedding area, like compared to what I was used to, you know, you get into these, this, where the real thick vegetation is, it's not like, 
like back home or back in Kentucky, you know, if you have a lot of downfalls, you know, you got a lot of briars, honeysuckles, real thick stuff that you can't walk through. That's what, you know, that's, that would be, you know, a typical area for, for a bedding area there. Here, it was dry pockets that you could find that didn't, that weren't disturbed by the hogs as much as other areas. A lot of the areas were actually really, that I found to be bedding areas. And for the most part, like it took me, I couldn't tell you how many times it took me walking through the woods and, and blowing out a deer. And I would stand there and scratch my head. I would be like, why in the world is there a deer there? Like it doesn't make any sense to me. So after about doing this about two or three times, I would, I I finally, I was like, you know what? I'm going to walk over there to where that deer was and I'm going to see why it was there. I'm going to see if it was just, you know, if there's a bed there, if it was just feeding there, if it was drinking water there. I was like, I'm going to use my eyes and use the rest of my senses to see if I can find out what that deer is actually doing there. And lo and behold, it was, there was one bed and I would take a couple steps and it was just in this like tall grass that was on the edge of this marsh or it was like a swamp that they backed up to this big river system. And sure enough, you walk three more feet, there's another bed. Three or four more feet, another bed. And it was just like they laid down on top of this really tall grass to kind of make, you know, to give them a buffer in between the water and their bodies. So, I, and, and that's, that's when everything started clicking to me. Because you could find, you know, you could find the food. That wasn't the hard part. It was finding out where they were, how they were getting to the food and where they were at before they came to the food which was, is what was puzzling me. Cause I was like, these deers are just coming from everywhere. I don't know. It's, it was hard for me to get on one until I made that connection. I was like, okay, they're betting in places like this. Now, all I got to do is find a dry spot that I can, between the food that I can set up on. And I got to find a good access that I don't blow everything out on a good wind direction. However, I could get in there. I would get in there and then it just, it made sense. Yeah. And that's how I was able to start. I was start able to, you know, to see more deer. And then, and eventually I was able to, to harvest the nice buck. Okay. So was that consistent around a uh, majority of the properties were these little dry pockets that, that butted up to a marsh, you'd, you'd see uh, an edge of sorts where there was some, some grass that provided good cover and, uh, like really wet stuff and then dry, you know, dry land. Oh yeah. It was, um, it, it, that, that was like a a pretty much constant. And that's just for the particular area that I was, that I was hunting in because there's a a lot of river systems, a lot of big creeks. Um, so everything is associated with, with water. Now, if I was able to get a boat in there and access by boat, there's no telling what kind of deer you would see back there. Yeah. I mean, because there's not, I don't feel like there's a lot of people that, that I'm, I mean, you know, there's other podcasts out there and there's those TV shows and there's shows on YouTube where people show them going out there on kayaks and, you know, on little John boats or accessing by water any way they can. And it's just, it makes sense. It's, and it's out there and it's like people are telling the world how to do it. But everybody's just like, nah, you know what? I'll just drive my truck 
you know, I don't want to put in the extra effort. I'm just, I'm just going to drive the truck and, and walk, you know, a couple hundred yards and see what I see. You know, I, I feel like recently I've, I've had that exact conversation. Actually, I think I had this conversation with another, um, uh, this week, Parker McDonald from the Southern ground, uh, podcast. Okay. And he told, he, he was like, man, People see this stuff being done, but they still decide not to do it, right? And then they bitch and complain about, oh, the deer hunting sucks or whatever. But there's a group of people that are willing to do it who think that the hunting is awesome. Yeah, the proof is there. If they're consistently going out, and it's not, it doesn't matter how big the deer is. It doesn't matter how small the deer is. It's just if if they're constantly getting on deer and they can access a piece of property and no one else can without blowing out all the deer before they get to the spot they want to hunt. Why not give it a try? If right. I believe me, if, if I had the means to get a boat and do all that kind of stuff, I'd be in. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. You know, I can swim. Flip the boat over, I, I'll still swim back. You know, right? It's not that, I don't feel like it's that big a deal. Yeah, but you know, it, it would definitely be something that would be fun to 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 try out, and you know, in the future. Yeah. All right, so let me ask you this. Um, when you identified, you know, where these deer were, were bedding, was that kind of an aha moment for you? And did you use that information to put together a game plan on how you plan to access these spots, how you plan to hunt the deer? Yeah, so I, I found, yeah, I used my maps. Yeah, I could, I used the Onyx maps, and I used that um, to every advantage that I could. So I would find... I wasn't necessarily walking, you know, from like a line distance. I wasn't walking more than a mile to where I was at, where I had parked my truck. Now, but the way that I would walk to get in to access, I was probably, I was probably walking probably closer to two miles, maybe a little bit more because I would do a J hook back around to where I was that in this particular spot that I'm talking about is where I killed my buck at. And I found out that if I, if I did a J hook back out into this field up towards another road and come back down, instead of parking on the top and coming back down, I didn't feel like the deer were going to associate me coming, just doing this small J hook out into this, this, um, this big wide open field that was overgrown with just some kind of weeds. You know, it was probably in some places it was, it was shoulder high. Some places it was over my head, but I felt like if I took my time and I went in on a good wind direction, that if I walked straight across through, I felt like I was going to blow them out because if I walk, if I was to walk from where the truck was to where my stand is, I'm going to be walking right on the side of that marsh. And I didn't want to do that because I felt like I was going to be bumping them out of their bed. So I did a, did a big J hook and got back around to the stand and walked through this, you know, it wasn't like super thick, like weeds but it was thick enough that i didn't make a lot of noise but it was thick enough that i i wasn't seen by the deer as long as i went in i'm wanting to say it was a it was a north like a north northwest wind okay that that i was that i was golden but what had so i I hunted this spot a couple times and i was like okay i'm i had this spot dialed in i'm not gonna mess with it i'm gonna wait until October, the end of very end of October rolls around and I'm going to be able to hunt it for three days 
before I take my two-week vacation to go back and hunt in Kentucky. So I waited and I waited and I waited and something came up at work and I had to work those last three days before I left for my leave to go on vacation to Kentucky. So I wasn't able to hunt that spot before. And I took, I took 17 days. So the very last part of October, the weather was good and I couldn't even hunt it because I had to, I had to, I still had to be at work. Dang. So that was kind of a bummer. Well, that and sucks. I didn't necessarily have like a, I didn't have a single deer that, that I was like trying to like, I wasn't trying to shoot one specific deer. I was just, there was a lot of deer activity there. And I was like, I have to be there at the right time. If I'm not there on the right time, then I'm, I'm going to see a bunch of does. I'm going to see a bunch of small bucks. But if I'm there at the right time, I might see a, de- a decent buck. Right. And it just so happened to fall, you know, it, the rut came and went by the time I could actually hunt that spot again. But I was fortunate enough to be able to go back to Kentucky for two weeks in the middle or the very first two weeks of November. And I was able to hunt on the, on my family farm. And that was, I haven't, out of all the years I've hunted there, I've never seen so many deer in my life all because I wound up. So when hunting on Fort Stewart, I was like, I'm not going to use climbing tree stands. I'm not going to put up, you know, ladder tree stands. I'm going to do a mobile setup. So I have a, I don't know what, I think it's like, it's a big game aluminum stand. And I have the Hawk uh, helium sticks. And so I was taking that in and out every time I went in. Well, I took that back to Kentucky with me. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to hunt these other spots that I've been hunting the entire time. I was like, I'm going to take a little bit of this knowledge that I found while hunting in Georgia, and I'm going to see if I can use that to my advantage a little bit when I go back to Kentucky. And I, it was my fault. I saw more deer than I've ever seen on that piece of property in four days than I've seen in probably the past 10 years. Yeah. And that was all just because I wasn't hunting the same spots. I, I, would, I, I got mobile, and then I had the most depressing day of my life. I missed the biggest deer I've ever had an opportunity with, with my bow. And I put myself in the perfect situation. I just messed it up. Yeah, man. So we've all been there, my friend. So, so it sounds to me like this, this trying time for you in Georgia led to you having to use your brain a little bit more uh, on how to find and locate and access deer, right? You took that information back to your old stomping ground and it made you a better hunter. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. I was, I was, I was getting in on more deer. Like I said, getting in on more deer than I was, than I knew what to do with. And I was, like I said, I'm pretty picky when I go back to Kentucky and hunt, when I go back home and hunt with my papa and my, and one of my friends, um, but it just so happened that we had a freakish cold front come through. I'm sure it was it hit you guys too last November. It never snows in November, hardly ever in Kentucky. Oh yeah. And it's usually it's usually the beginning of November. It's usually, you know, low thirties, high, you know, mid to mid fifties during during the day. 
No, it was like negative three degrees in the morning, and the highs weren't even above freezing. And it just snowed, and it, oh, man. It was it was awesome hunting weather, but the day after that front hit, I had something going on back in Georgia, so I had to take a, a week and come back to Georgia, and I was only able to come back to Kentucky for about, I don't know, three or four days and gun hunt with my pap all. And I was able, I shot a doe while I was there. Uh, but then I came back and that's when I was able to go back to the spot where I was like, I'm going to kill a deer in Georgia. And that's what I focused all my efforts on for the next, I don't know, three or four days, something like that. Yeah. As soon as I got back to get that done. So you, uh, you went back to to Georgia and you went back to some of the, the places where you, you found all that sign and you found the beds and you found the, the transitions and the edges. Um, once you were actually hunting in there, did you start to see more deer than the previous times that you've been hunting? Oh yeah. So the first time I went in there, I was, I only saw, I saw two does and it was towards the latter end of November. And I was like, well, you know, if, if I go ahead and shoot one of these does, I might burn this spot for good because there's no telling how many people there could be. I don't know. There could be somebody hunting, you know, a hundred yards away. So they may be coming in and pressuring it. There could be hunting, you know, somebody else hunting a couple hundred yards away. They could be pressuring it. So I was like, I'm going to take my chances. If I shoot a doe, then I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I might burn this spot for good. So um, I elected not to shoot one of those does. And the next day I came back, I came back for an afternoon sit and it was, I'm going to say it was like 78 degrees down here that day. The, the conditions were not good. I did have a good win, but the, everything else was completely bad. Okay. And I was like, well, I was like, well, you gotta be there. You gotta be out in the woods. So I went out, um, got my stand out of the truck, loaded everything up. And, uh, I start my hike in there and I was, you know, I got halfway back there and I'm drenched in sweat and I'm just like, is this a good idea? Should I back out? Should I wait, come back in the morning? You know, when it's not so hot, you know, I'm going to be, I don't want to stink the whole place up, but I was like, well, you're already here. You might as well go ahead and do it. You got plenty of, uh, field spray in the back and I use the Ozonic scent crusher bag. So I was like, I scent crushed all my stuff. I'm wearing the least amount of clothing that I can on my way in there. So I was like, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. There's always tomorrow, you know, until the end of the season. So I get back there. Um, I get up the tree. And uh, I'd actually moved about 100 yards, probably to the south of where I was originally hunting. And um, I found a, a pretty decent tree. So... I want to get my sticks up there. I set the set my stand up. I got everything pulled up, made sure I had my safety harness and everything on. And um, I sit down and I just start cleaning myself the best I can. I pull, you know, the your whatever no scent field spray, whatever brand you decide to use, and I just start drenching myself. I look like I just stepped out of the shower. <laughs> I, I guarantee you, I used two bottles of that stuff just spraying myself down. I was dripping wet. And, um, but I was like, well, you know, what's it going to hurt, you know, spend a, you know, extra couple dollars on some sense breaks, you know, it's not really that big a deal. So I get there and I, I sit there and 
I, ne- I haven't really seen a, a lot of squirrels while I was in Georgia. But just from being back home in Kentucky for that short amount of time while I was hunting, it's one of those things, you know, if you don't look, when you think it's a squirrel, it's going to be a deer. It's one of those things, you know. You know how it is? You're just sitting up there in the tree, and, a, you know, you hear rustling around. You've already looked over there four times, and it's been the same squirrel. Well, the one time you don't look, it's not going to be a squirrel. It's There's going to be a deer there. So I was just looking at every, you know, staying on my toes, and I heard a twig break off to my right, kind of, and it's kind of up in the field, and I was like, there's no way there's going to be a squirrel up there. I was like, maybe it's a hog. I haven't seen any hogs. I haven't seen a lot of hog signs. And I, I watched, you know, I was looking at the top of these weeds to see if they were moving back and forth to see if I could see something actually, you know, if something was walking through there. But I never caught a glimpse of movement or anything. And I've been sitting probably for about, I don't know, maybe an hour to an hour and a half. Okay. And uh, it was still really early in the afternoon. I'm going to say it was only like 4.30 in the afternoon. And um, I still had, I still probably had another hour and a half before it got dark. And I just so happened to look up and I was like, well, I, I heard something else and I, I looked up and I was like, it's got to be the same thing that was making that noise, but it can't be a deer because I didn't see it walking through this, these tall weeds, you know, getting ready to go on the edge of this marsh and walk right by me. Well, I don't know if, where this buck came from, if he came across the, the road and down this big field with all the weeds in it that I had access through. But he walked straight pretty much out from, from my right. And this, was, this is actually a – so you have to have at least four points on one side. It's, a, it's, it's got an antler restriction. Okay. So you have to have four points on one side. So I, I wind up seeing that it's a deer. And, I, you know, so I pull up my binoculars, and I was like, this is a, it was on a weekend that you couldn't shoot does. It's, it was bucks only. So I pulled up the binoculars and I make sure it's a buck. And I was like, oh, God, that's, a, that's a really nice buck. And I counted the, the four points on the one side. And I was like, okay, that's all I need. And um, I, was, I was gun hunting at the time. So I pulled up my rifle and he was about 150 yards getting ready to walk, um, keep staying on the edge of that marsh. And um, so I wound up, you know, I took a breath out, put it right behind his shoulders, slowly squeezed the trigger. And he was gone. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I was like, I just missed a deer. I just, I was like, that's going to be my second miss on a decent buck for this year. And I was like, I'm just getting, I was like, I'm going to go pack all my stuff up and I'm going home. And I, this happened in a matter of seconds. And I just told myself that because I didn't see the deer go down. I didn't see where he went. And next thing you know, I just hear, it sounded like, you know, a deer just thrashing. And he had doubled back around. And I couldn't hear him because he was running through all those weeds. But he doubled back around in this marsh and just started thrashing around down in there. And he was just so having to be in this little pocket. I could look through my binoculars and I could see him getting all wobbly legged and just oh, running into stuff. And then he fell over. And I was like, oh my, I was like, that just happened. I started shaking. I got, you know, I was all nervous and I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, then it hit me. It never even occurred to me until the, the point when I shot this deer. I was like, how am I going to get it out of here? Because I was, and I was, you know, I was way back. I was probably through these little access road that tanks drive in on. So it's like anybody who doesn't have a, a four-wheel drive truck is not going to be able to make it back back there. If you just have a car, 
there's no way. But I didn't have service. I had saved all my uh, my Onyx maps. Like I had had sectioned everything out, but that, portions that I wanted to save so that I could use my Onyx maps while I was back there. I had saved everything because I knew I wasn't going to have service. And then I was like, I'm back here by myself. And then that's when the, the wheel started turning. I was like, well, I also have to be, be able to drive the hour, you know, 30, 45 minutes, whatever it is, could be up to an hour, depending on which way you go, to a spot where I have cell phone service so that I can check out of this area and not get in trouble. And I was like, I am really crunched for time here. And I didn't have time to really celebrate or anything about it because I started thinking about those things. So I got down out of the stand. I pulled the stand down because I could see the deer um, and he was laying there. And so I was like, I could see him. I don't have to you know, go find him. So I got everything down, pulled the stand down, got the stand on the pack, got everything strapped down. I walk over to the deer and um, I was like, oh, awesome. It's a good eight point. You know, it's, you know, nothing to really brag brag home about but i was like i'm i'm completely happy with this deer i was like i'm ecstatic but i have to get it cleaned out and i got to get it back to the truck so but i started looking and i noticed something weird about his, his right eye because he was laying on his left side so i flipped him over and his right eye was swollen shut and it had pus coming out of it and i was like that's weird i wonder what that is so i kind of started looking around and right above his right eye, there was a little black ring, and you couldn't really tell what it was. And so I figured, you know, something had punctured above his eye and caused him to go blind in that eye, whatever it was, caused his eye to swell shut. And that's why it was like that. And so I didn't really put too much thought into it at the time. And uh, so I was like, all right, let me clean this deer out, and I got to try to get him back to the truck. With my stand, my sticks, my rifle, my pack, and everything else. So luckily, the deer are a lot smaller in Georgia than they are any probably anywhere else in the country other than Florida. This deer only after I field dressed him, he only weighed 128 pounds, and so it wasn't like I had a 250 pound deer to get out by myself. I was able to throw him over top of my back. If somebody would have drove by and saw me, I don't even know what they would have said. <laughs> I had so much. I looked like like Elmer Fudd, like packed up everything I would ever need, plus a deer on top. Yeah. And I'm trying to trudge through this, like go the shortest. I can't. Everything it was too thick to go back the way that I originally came from the truck. So what I had to wind up doing was I looked on my map and I found the closest straight line distance through that field that I could to the road, which was just a little bit under a mile. So I was able to get this deer over top of my shoulders and uh, I carried him back or carried him up to this field or to this, the field edge where the road was. And I had to drop him off there, walk another two miles back around to get to the truck. And then I had to drive the truck back there to pick him up. And uh, after I got him home and got him skinned out and everything, I noticed that that little black dot that was around his, or that was right up above his eye, was actually from a broadhead. No shit. Someone had shot him with a bow earlier in the season, 
and their broadhead was lodged behind his eye socket, and it was a um, it was a two blade havoc, is what it was. It was uh, the G five havoc, and it was lodged back behind his eye in his skull. Dang. And I was like, I've never seen. I've seen pictures of it online, but I never in my life thought that I would have shot a deer that had another person's arrow or broadhead or something along those lines stuck in it. Right. But it was uh, it was pretty unique, so I kept it there. I, I cleaned his skull out, and um, I did like a euro mount with it, and I boiled it out, and I kept it in there, and it's hanging up in my little little man room in my garage with all my other deer and my hunting stuff and everything. It's hanging up there on the wall, still has a broadhead stuck in it. Man, that's crazy. Well, congratulations on getting it done in uh, in a new state, uh, in a new environment, and uh, and uh, embracing the the uh the i don't know the the process i guess of of oh, locating yeah. was, and finding deer def- man so it was definitely something different but you know it was a learning experience a learning curve and i enjoyed every second of it yeah absolutely man well let me say good luck uh this upcoming season again thank you for your service and uh All right. man we'll talk to you next time <laughs> all right well thank you very much you have a good season man And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Huge shout-out to Matt for taking time out of his day to hop on and chat. Huge shout-out to each and every one of you for downloading, listening, following along. Man, if you like this podcast, tell your friends about it. Share everything through social media. Uh, Man, I really appreciate everything that you guys have done for me. Thank you very much. Uh, Follow along on social. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. And, man, I, I really feel that the content that you're getting out of these uh, stories, these guests are some of the most relatable content on a hunting podcast, period. And that's me being cocky. So uh, take that with a grain of salt. Thank you. Good luck this season. Please be safe. Wear your safety harness. Grind as hard as you can. Shoot whatever you want. Have fun. And uh, man, we'll talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.